The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, step away from the internets. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 471 with guest Vishwas Lele, recorded live Tuesday, July 21st, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man also known as the fastest MP3 tagger in the world. Oh, the meters, not the meteors, you... Beagles, what is... Ah! Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, and welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl and Richard here for your .NET listening pleasure. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? Pretty good. I'm uh, working on a screenplay over here. Yeah, you have been for a while now. How's it coming? Well, I actually finished that first 30 page, and now I'm working on another one. And uh, Oh, here, here's some interesting news. The, the guy that uh, is teaching me is a student of the Flaherty brothers, who uh, Jason Flaherty wrote Flatliners. Right. And uh, I think it was Peter Flaherty that wrote Flatliners, and Jason wrote um, Seventeen again. That movie with Zac Efron. It just came out. Yeah. So they're you know I went to school with their brother uh, Eric, and uh, they're all local people here. So Nick Checker, my screenwriting teacher, he wrote this story called The Curse of Micah Rood, and made it into a movie that played here locally, and it just played at the Long Island uh, Film Festival. And out of 450 movies, best movie. Wow. Congratulations to him. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. It's kind of nice to be uh, associated with a, a group of uh, local people who are passionate about something other than development. Yeah. That's, and good fun, too. Yeah. Lots was, of fun. Uh, I was watching a retrospective on Martin Scorsese who talked about when he writes screenplays, he writes them end to end before he dares read it again. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, strange how they do that. Everybody's got their tricks. All right, let's get into Better Know Framework. All right, what do you got? Well, this is an interesting thing. Do you know the date-time object, uh, which 
can represent a date and time, obviously, has different modes. In fact, there's a property called kind that returns an enumeration called date, time, kind. And this is system.datetimekind. And basically, it can be unspecified, which means the time represented is not specified as either local time or UTC, or it could be UTC or local. UTC is uh, coordinated universal time. Right. It's you know I've always told you before on this show that I hate dates and times because just like date math and localization, it's just a big pain. Right? Yeah, no question. Right? And I guess kind means it's tolerant to missing data. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But also, what you know is it local? Is it UTC? You know, now you can set it in a date time, and you and more more importantly, you can check it. Right. So when you're here, the classic problem is, especially with distributed systems, it's like, okay, it's the time where yeah. at the server, at the client, who's in charge of that? You know, that's, um, that's always an interesting problem. So .NET has a good set of date time types. Yep. And there's also lots of great stuff in the help file about converting between time zones and dealing with that stuff. I've had to deal with that over and over again, and it's never fun. But at least, you know, there's good tools in the Dynet framework to help you with that. So that's it. Awesome. Yeah. So I also want to mention that um, our, our good friends at Infusion Development are still looking for people. If you're a talented SharePoint developer or talented .NET developer, you're looking for a change of pace. They have offices in New York and in Toronto, in London, and in Dubai. And uh, they've hired a bunch of people from .NET Rocks, so you'd be in very good company. Let me know, Carl at Franklin's.net, if you're interested in that. All right. So no email today. No email today. So I guess, uh, you know, every once in a while we look through the mailbox, and there just isn't anything that interesting or compelling. So, Well, and I always worry that I've left good emails behind, so I have to go digging through the back. But uh, didn't have a lot of success today. Well, Richard, our guest today is Vishwas Lely. He is a CTO at Applied Information Sciences, a managed gold partner based in Washington, D.C. area, where he's worked for the last 15 years building applications on Windows. Welcome, Vishwas. Thank you. So, you've uh, done some work with Azure. That's right. You are the only one I know. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. It seems like, you know, it seems like, Richard, that in Vishwas, that that, uh, you know, people are talking about it as, you know, academic exercises and maybe a few samples, but nobody's really, I haven't seen any applications written with it that, well, could be considered complete applications. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, and then, you know, it has, that has to do with, uh, uh, you know, the pricing obviously just got announced and there's been a big discussion about that. And, uh, uh you know, you could only do one role, uh, one worker role, and one web role. So this is limited amount of capability that is available for you to build real applications at this point. So I think that should change as we move yeah. closer to the PDC dates. Right, and I I knew that it would. So tell me about your application. What what did you do, and what was it before it was an Azure application? Sure, sure. Um, um, so, you know, it's interesting you say that um, you're the only one I know, and I know you're, you're joking about that. And, and yeah. clearly there are so many other people who know so much more about Azure. So I didn't want this talk to come across as coming from some big ex Azure expert. You know, I'm in the quest to learn this, like many others. 
And um, in an attempt to learn this technology, uh, uh, I took uh, the dinnernow.net application, dinnernow.net, like I was saying earlier, dinnernow.net is a sample application that Microsoft developed. Uh, it was designed to showcase the capabilities of .NET 3.5, so uh, workflow services, link to SQL, all the technologies that you can think of, they, they wanted to have one comprehensive application that included all of that. Okay. Uh, in terms of functionality, it has three pieces, an ASP.NET-based website, which allows people to search for restaurants, uh, place orders. Uh, then there's a smart client piece, which is a WPF application, which allows the restaurant managers to look at these orders. Uh, and then there's a mobile piece a Windows mobile application uh, that allows a delivery person to know the status of these orders and you know mark them as delivered, etc. So the application is really three parts, three different clients. And I thought it was a good application for me to take it and port it to Azure. And uh, and I got started with the first piece, which made most sense to convert the website portion of it, which included the ASP.NET code and some web services. Okay. that to Azure. Uh, uh, as I and there's a blog post, um, Carl, where I describe how I describe the steps that I undertook to accomplish this, and then I've also published the source code um, of the ported application. And there's also a URL which takes you to the application running on Azure, right? And then I made that made that available on my blog as well, which uh, I believe you have a link to. Yeah, this is at Fleeting Thoughts, your blog, right? That, that is correct. That's correct. So uh, I, I thought that this was an NTR application and um, it was a good opportunity to see how much effort it would involve to port it to the Azure platform. Okay. So what exactly um, does that mean? What, what pieces did you port? I mean, is it just simply yeah. a bunch of services that return the information? Or So, so the pieces that I've Ported was was the was related to the website. So uh, if you go to the um, go to the Azure URL of my ported application, you will come you will come across a website where you can log in a register yourself as a user, or if you are a registered user, log in into the site, uh, perform some searches based on the cuisine type you want, Mexican, Thai, what have you. Uh, search for that. Provide your zip code. And that will bring up a list of restaurants that match that criteria. And then now you can select a restaurant, go take a look at the menu, select a menu, place an order, and you're done at this point. So all of that functionality that I just described is -hmm. what I ported to Azure. Uh, The the smart client application and the Windows mobile piece, I did not. Um, it, It would be interesting, however, to, you know, to, convert the smart client piece into some kind of a Silverlight application. And the, the mobile application would um, could make real good use of uh, some of the mesh services. Uh, so I've thought about the other two pieces, but have not yet done much work on those. So okay. the first piece, which is the website that I've ported to Azure. And the website basically is the, is this the main client where people go in and they order dinner and... That is correct. And, yeah, I see. That is correct. Yeah. So it also uses link to SQL, right? Uh, right. So so in uh, the the application in its current incarnation as made available by Microsoft 
is an ASP.NET application hosted in IIS 7. Uh, it uses link to SQL to query SQL Server 2005 based data. Right. It has a bunch of web services, uh, WCF services, uh, which it uses to look up certain information. So, for example, there is a query service which will take the user's search criteria and then perform that request against the database and return the results. So, is so, that the portion that you ported the where, yes. where it has? Yes, so I ported yes. all of that. ASP.NET Pages, um, the data, web services, and data. Yes, all of those pieces. Okay. And, and I, I'm sure we will get into what these pieces translate into in Azure Parallels. Huh, that's interesting. Now, did you did you give ev- anyone and everyone access to the database, read-only access to it? Can we go into the cloud and start querying against it in our own Azure programs? Uh, did I? So, so that that's... Um, can you directly go to the database? You, you cannot go to the database directly. No, no, no. I mean, can we use this? I mean, you ported it into absolutely, the cloud. It's absolutely. out there. So, so okay. if you go to ais.cloudapp.net, as we speak, uh, you will see the website. You can uh, searches. You don't have to log in to do searches. Uh, but if you wanted to place an order, you need to register yourself. Uh, and then once you've registered yourself, use those credentials to log in and place an order. Yeah. Okay. So you could anybody on the internet could do that, and uh, what is interesting is uh, the dinnernow.net uses the ASP.NET membership provider to 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 uh, that allows you to register yourself as a user. And I wanted an equivalent capability when I was porting it to Azure, and I'm using a membership provider which is based on Azure tables, and and I did not write that provider. Uh, it is part of one of the samples of Azure SDK. Hey, so I got a question. Yes. Did you make this actually work? In other words, if I, because if I search for Mexican dinner within yes. 30 minutes and I got back a sushi place, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, so, so you just tried it and you got that back? Yeah, I got back a sushi place. Yeah. So, so you know, I mean, the data is limited and, you know. All yeah, that. It's, it, what I'm saying is it's, it's dummy data, right? It is dummy data. Yeah. It is dummy data. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Okay. But but it is um, it is working in the sense that it is it is not some hard coded value that's being returned to you. It no, is no, actually sure. going to Azure tables and there's some data there which is being pulled back. But but I'm sure I, I didn't carefully create all the combinations and things like that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's very cool. So how long did the port take? Uh, I was quite surprised um, actually. Uh, um, uh, I I should also mention. Let me take a step back. Uh, I was uh, in a pro in a training program for Windows Azure, um, all of Feb and all of March. Uh, this was a program that uh, Microsoft organized, a training program that Microsoft organized, uh, and uh, about hundred of us. I don't know the mix. About fifty Microsoft guys, fifty outsiders. Uh, we went through a training program which was about eight week long. We used to pick a topic, uh, you know, uh, cover that topic through the week, and there was a homework assignment at the end of the week, which used to take 10 or 12 hours every week. And, and it was quite daunting uh, during the course of that, that uh, training. Uh, and Scott Zimmerman from Microsoft, who ran that training, was, was a hard taskmaster. You know, if you have to submit the homework by 8 a.m. on Friday or something like that. 
So the reason I'm mentioning this is I had gone through that training and it, it was yeah. immensely helpful. It, it seemed very difficult to go through that for the eight weeks that I was in it, but it was immensely helpful. And I started on this project right after that. So I had some background uh, knowledge and plus I'd been working with the stock services and some things like that for six months. Uh, with these two data elements, you know, having some knowledge and then going through the training, the port was not that difficult. Uh, the port was, I would say, took a, about a week or two to to get it done. And, uh, you know, I was, again, there may be, you, and you hit upon one of the one of the issues that the data is not correctly configured. So I may not have gone to an at level of detail, but I mm-hmm. got it working end-to-end in about right. two weeks. And oh, I should cool. also mention, uh, you know, someone on my team, Haddon, uh, from AIS also, he and I worked on it together. So I would say two weeks for the both of us. That's pretty cool. Let's talk about um, the implementation and specifically what's going on in Azure in the background. Sure. I imagine that you ported the data first, and you did that as uh, cloud storage. That, that is, yeah, that's that's interesting um, because, uh, uh, as you well know, uh, uh, back in March or late Feb, Microsoft accelerated the relational capability of the SQL data services. Of course, it has now been renamed to. Um, uh, SQL Azure or something like that, but it used to be called SQL Data Services back then. Okay. And back then, it was not a relational model. They had said that the relational model was was going to be coming soon, but at that point, it was uh, an entity-based model. Basically blob so storage. March, sorry? Basically blob storage. Here, hold this. Absolutely. Now give it back. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and then they had mentioned about making the relational model available at some point, but they heard a lot of feedback from folks that relational model is what they want and they need it now, and they accelerated the relational capability of SQL data services. Uh, Of course, it is still not available. The pricing, of course, has been announced. It is not available. So I was faced with this question that I have the SQL Server 2005 existing database, the existing application, that is, a bunch of tables, uh, you know, foreign key relationships, um, and how do I port it to Azure? You know, I don't have the relational capability available, which would have made the task really simple. Right. Uh, all, all I would have, have done is, you know, created the same schema over in the in in the cloud, opened up a TDS connection uh, to the cloud, and you know, everything else would have worked fine. My link to SQL would have worked just fine. But of course, relational capability was not available then. So I I thought that. Instead of waiting for that, let me go ahead and use the Windows Azure tables, which is a structured storage within Windows Azure, and let me use that. And and how much time would we take me to port the data over, etc. Uh, so uh, you, you're you're absolutely right. That was one of the most daunt- challenging tasks, and and that's something I attacked first. Uh, so. Uh, you know, I, I looked at the schema um, from the relational model as it exists today and mm-hmm. then thought of equivalent tables in Windows Azure table storage. Okay. And what what is interesting is uh, you can't obviously do link to SQL, but you can do ADO.NET data services against the Azure tables. So I found that, uh, you know, I could take some of the link expressions from link to SQL. Of course, I had to modify them, adjust them. But 
um, at a high level, they are quite similar. Uh, you know, I could take my link to SQL code and then translate it over to ADO.NET data services. Yeah. Was transferring the tables easy, or did you have to do that manually? Were there any tools to do it? There are no tools to do it. Uh, in fact, um, uh, it was not easy, I would say, because uh, I was trying to learn Windows Azure tables at that point, and I'm glad I did, and I'll, I'll yeah. elaborate on why I say that in a second. Uh, so Windows Azure storage um, uh, tables, part of it, you know, it, it, it supports queues and blobs as well. But, but I took advantage of the table, which is a structured storage, like I said, but it does not enforce a schema, right? The other thing you have to think carefully about is it is, a highly, it is designed to be highly scalable, you know, uh, to, to any amount of data that you may have. But to be able to do that, you need to think about your partitioning strategy very carefully. And you have to think about this upfront. And, and this is the difference between designing to store data in Windows Azure tables versus in a SQL database, right? Where, where you are not very concerned about partitioning upfront. I mean, you have techniques to, you know, you can do table partitioning later on if you needed to. But you don't think of that upfront. Here, I had to think of that upfront because you're fundamentally balancing uh, between two things, right? One is, if you, if you choose a partition key that is too granular, uh, then your partition size will become really small. And then what if you have to run a query, uh, and I should use a concrete example here. If I, let's say my partition key, uh, which determines where my entity gets placed, so uh, all my entities, uh, let's say order is my entity, order one is my partition. Uh, so all the information about um, the entities that are, have the same partition key will be stored on one partition. Right? Okay. Uh, right. So if you wanted to run a query and say, give me all orders that came from this customer uh, after this date or before this date, Imagine if you have to go to a single node only or a single partition only. You know, the query will be very efficient, of course. But what if you have to go across multiple partitions to get that data? And now suddenly you find that your query is not very efficient. You have to go across several nodes to collect the data and then return it back um, to the user. Yeah. Right. So, so what you're balancing really is what should be your partition key granularity so that all the data that you're going to query together is coming from a single node. Uh, uh, okay, of course, I see. The, the, the thing that you have to watch out is you may be tempted to make everything part of a single partition, right? Because sure. you want, want the data to come from a single node. But, but that will be counterproductive because that partition will become too hot. Every query will run in this partition. And, you know, system will not be able to break the records across multiple nodes and take advantage of multiple nodes that are available. So, so would, do you end up duplicating data? So what I ended up doing was, you know, I, um, I uh, have a partition key strategy where um, I store the order ID as the partition key. And uh, there is a concept of a partition key and a row key. And together you are um, basically the row key and the partition key is what you're sorting on. The roll key is what? 
So, so the row key is the secondary key. The primary key is the partition key, and row key is the secondary key. And together, yeah. uh, they form a unique. Um, they provide you a unique reference to an entity within Windows Azure storage tables. Now, does does that mean that? Huh. Does that mean that you can only do a query that involves two tables? Uh, no, you you, you can, um, can. I guess I'm not following you. So, so uh, actually, let me let me restate this. Uh, a win- uh, any table inside Windows Azure has a primary key that is comprised of two things: the partition key and the row key. That's how all the entities are sorted by. That's how they're sorted. I see. So you have the ability to tell the system what are the two things that together make the primary key for this table. I see. Right? So what I did was uh, I took the partition key and I made my order. And every time you go in and place an order, you get an order ID. And that is a good. And Mm -hmm. I made that order the partition key. Okay. And then every order can have multiple details. You, know, you, may, or, you may order one entree uh, for some amount. You may order another entree and, and so on and so forth. Those are all order details. What I did was I made order and order details. There are two different entities have the same partition key, so they're always co-located in one node. Interesting. Okay. Right. I'm just surprised, Vishwas, that you had to think about all this. You know, we were told that, that right. this was cloud computing, it was utility computing, and it scales seamlessly, and and it just works. That's that's yeah. That that's the interesting point. You have to. You're forced into thinking about partitioning up front. No question about that. And in fact, uh, you have to think about the kinds of queries you're going to run, uh, and apply those queries against the partition key strategy that you've come up with. And, uh, you know, if you find that you're running queries that are not taking advantage of the partition key, you may have to adjust it. So uh, there is some amount of learning that has to to be done. Obviously, you have the relational capability that's going to be available. And for most people, uh, you know, the developer edition is one gig, I believe, and and then the, the business edition is 10 gigs. That's the limit. For most people, they'll be able to simply take their data uh, migrate it to the cloud, you know, have a connection string that, uh, uh, you know, is directed towards the cloud and now happily run your link to SQL or EF queries right. and don't think about it and, you know, go about building the applications like you've done always. And I expect that to be a large you know, large percentage of applications. But aren't you still going to have node concerns when it with the, the relational model as well? Richard, if I if I understood your question correctly, the same concern applies to the relational model. Yes. Uh, no. Uh, so you don't have to do anything uh, uh, different from what you would do with a SQL Server in-premise instance, right? You, it's exactly the same. The only thing you have to worry about the relational model is that you have an upper limit of ten gigs. Right, but what about performance? Like, where? How does the scalability come out of the relational model? So, how does the scalability come out from the relational model? Yeah, like, how do I add multiple servers? Do I do I need to do any of that stuff? There's just no node concerns. It's just going to scale mysteriously. So, I don't know if I can answer that well, Richard. Um, uh, big. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I need I need to look that up, but right. I don't think there are there are things you can do to you know. I have a ninety nine dollar a month account, which is what they've published right. as the uh, as the relational account for the business edition, and they've said that uh, you can store up to ten gigs of data. I have not seen any documentation, and certainly there's a lot available out there, which says that. To make my 10 gigs of data perform better, my query is better, I can do these 10 things. I can split it out. I can do other things. I've not seen that documentation. Oh, okay. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, without whose support this show surely would not exist. You know, summer is peaking, and our friends at Telerik are working full steam. They've just released the Q2 volume of the Telerik Premium Collection for .NET, which is their biggest release yet. Packed with new things, it'll surely excite anyone who has anything to do with .NET development. Let's start with Silverlight and the introduction of the first commercial 3D chart on the market. It is developed as True Vector 3D, which guarantees swift performance and rich capabilities like rotation, animations, etc. Another major announcement is the Telerik Silverlight Scheduler, which is packed with tons of features even in the first version. Telerik's flagship, RAD Controls for ASP.NET Ajax, grows not only with four new controls, but also with new productivity tools. Take the new Visual Style Builder, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. And if that's not enough, they've added a completely new product, a free testing framework powered by Art of Test for automating Ajax and Silverlight-rich Internet applications. Since I'm short on time here, I can't enumerate all the new features and enhancements in the Telerik Reporting, Open Access ORM, and their Windows Forms products, so I'll leave it for you to check them out at Telerik.com. And don't forget to say thank you for supporting .NET Rocks. What's surprising to me, Vishwas, is that I, th I would have thought that Azure was going to be running SQL Server on the back end, and so that you would you would have the same sort of capabilities and in, in user experience that you have with SQL Server? So it is It is running. Um, so uh, let's talk about this. The, the SQL data services or the SQL Azure, it's, as it's been renamed to, it, it is, uh, so if you look at the data fabric technology that they, they are calling it, which is the underpinning of how they're offering relational capability, the data fabric is nothing but a a large cluster of SQL Server boxes that are running in the data center, right? So when you do a write to your database instance, they are taking that write operation and spreading it out to a quorum of clusters or the SQL Server nodes so that you, you never lose your data, you have uh, fault tolerance, etc. So they're doing all that behind the covers for you, and it is indeed based on SQL Server technology. And uh, based on some information that was made available at the PDC and in blogs subsequently, uh, it is based on SQL Server code base, but they have had to modify the code base from what is available in its commercial form today because, you know, they added things like synchronization. You know, they have, so you have multiple nodes in the data fabric, that are providing you the relational capability, but all of these nodes have to be in sync, et cetera. So they had to add some custom capability on top of the SQL Server code base. So they had to abstract over it, and therefore, uh, and therefore, you don't you don't sort of get the the real down of the metal SQL experience that you would normally have with a SQL Server. 
But, I mean, to Vishwa's point, you implemented this before that SQL service version was available. You used the original blob storage option. Right. So so I used uh, the table storage, and, and, and you know, the Windows Azure storage consists of three things, table, blob, and queue. And okay. I used the table storage. In fact, I used the queue as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was... Uh, looking back, I'm glad that I, I took the time to look into Azure tables because, no question, you have to think about your partitioning strategy up front. But you are getting a lot for it. Once you have thought through your partitioning strategy, you get a lot for it because uh, now you don't have to worry about the 10 gig limit. Uh, you can scale endlessly. There is there is no cap on any kind of size. Right. Um, uh, the Azure table uh, underlying technology is smart enough to say, oh, your partition is becoming too hot, let me move it to another node, or let me move the partition to a dedicated node. I mean, it's doing all kinds of fantastic things behind the covers for you. So so there's a lot to, to uh, you know, benefit from. So, so my advice uh, in, in the limited experience that I've had is, by all means, when the relational model becomes available, look at that, and that may be your best way to move your applications. But don't ignore the Windows Azure tables completely because it gives you really a scalable model, and uh, it gives you a number of capabilities that you may find interesting. And uh, I should add that uh, the big table implementation from Google, so if you write an application on the Google App Engine today, you don't get a relational model. You get... Uh, a Windows Azure table-like model called right. the Big Table, and Big Table today is supporting about seventy of their applications, including Google Maps, Google Financials. All of those applications are running off of the Big Table. So, huh. so there are a number of applications out there that are using that paradigm, and it would not be right to just ignore the tables and just go only with the relational model. If that makes sense. Sure, and and like I I feel the same way you do that blob or blob the, the table storage was the sort of simple solution and and the, we'd all use SQL as soon as it was available, but we don't know how the SQL version is actually going to scale, and and you've pretty well described what you've got to do to make the uh, table approach scale, which does make sense to me. You just got to do some homework to make it work. And it it also sounds like you could retrofit, you could change your mind and change the partition right. key on some existing data to move it close to absolutely. another partition. Absolutely. I, I, could, I could absolutely do that. Um, it, see, because Azure Table is not enforcing any kind of schema. Right. Right. So, so one entity can have uh, four properties. The next entity can have 25 properties, and, and properties in database terms are columns. Uh, the only limit is that you can have 255 properties per entity, and I believe there's a limit of one meg of storage per entity. But those are the only limits. A single table can span terabytes of data. And in fact, it is interesting that SQL Server itself is moving in that direction. Yeah. Uh, if you looked at the Madison project, which I don't know what the release vehicle will be for the Madison capability. I don't know if it's the next version of SQL Server or probably a service pack. Not quite sure. But it is it is implementing a strategy to parallelize your work, to partition your work. Um, so, you know, if you have large tables, uh, billions of rows, how can you partition it in a relational model? So that's a capability being added to SQL Server. Yeah. But, and and you got to think that, that Azure will try and adopt some of that. Yes. 
Vishwas, do we have procedures? Do we have store procs? Or are you writing directly against tables? So, so the relational capability will have all of those things, triggers, root procedures, user-defined functions, everything. Uh, on the Azure table side, there are no stored procs uh, uh, or triggers. Um, right. So, so okay. y- you get quite a limited capability there. Uh, in fact, I should mention that uh, you get an atomic operation when you're updating a single entity. And as long as you're going against a single partition, which means going against a single node, you get uh, a snapshot isolation, which means you don't get any dirty reads. But beyond that, um, let's say I wanted to delete an order, and then I had wanted to do a cascading delete, which is a, quite an easy thing to do in the relational world. Right Here, I, don't, I can't do that. I can't have a transaction span across that. So what I would have to do is um, delete my order entity and then write a message to the Azure queue, which will then delete uh, all the order items associated with this order. So, so you know, you're probably wondering back to basics. You have to do all of those things manually. Yeah, but it's also that's uh, can you not uh, even if they were in the same partition, you'd have to do it that way. If you are within the same partition, uh, no, you 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 don't, because you get snapshot isolation, right. which means, uh, so so if you're in the same partition, you don't need to do that, although the atomic operation applies only to a single entity. Oh, okay. So right. there is no concept of a multi-entity transaction here? Uh, there is no concept, and I, if I misspoke, I'm sorry. There is no concept of a multi-entity transaction. There's only concept of a single entity transaction. Okay. But we're still talking about the tables. Yes. Right? Yeah, and still the, and the, relation, the, tables, right. the relational right. model is really obviously what people want to hold out for. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and relational model will provide all of the capabilities. I think there was a very nice blog post by the by the team which said all of those capabil- capabilities, stored referential procedures, triggers, foreign keys, everything is available. The referential integrity, the, the cascading deletes and all that too. Absolutely, absolutely. But you still get back to the question of how will that scale compared to how the the, the table approach scales? Right. So so that that's that's an interesting question. I mean, ten gigs is no mm. small amount of data. Yeah. Uh, you know, we uh, we we often say that you know I have a memory <laughs> stick with ten gigs. This will not be enough. But you know, for real applications, ten gigs is a lot. So so a majority of applications would be just fine. But I think if, once you start reaching that limit. I think you'll have to think carefully about how you partition your data. And I read somewhere in one of the blog posts by the team that they are looking to remove that limit in subsequent releases. So I think they will be doing this auto-partitioning behind the covers for you. And again, nothing concrete has been said, but someone in the team alluded to that, no timeline when it's going to be available. So but they are obviously thinking about a scale-out strategy for the relational capability. Well, then it, then it begs the question, will the table storage survive? Uh, I think the table storage will survive uh, because if, if you, uh, you know, if, if you have unstructured data, uh, you want to store a link in the table, you want to store a document in the blob, tie it up, to an Azure table. I think lots of applications still want to, you know, document collaboration. Lots of applications will like that. 
and and the fact that the pricing is quite different, right? Yes. Uh, Azure Table storage is fifteen cents for a gig, uh, and uh, this relational capability or the SQL Azure is about $99 a month for up to 10 gigs. So uh, there's a cost difference there as well. Yeah, it's a dollar a gig. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's a, it's a big difference. Uh, I could talk about data storage all day, but I suspect the listeners are what I want to get to the to the web page side of this as well, because you re-engineered that as too. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I think we, we spent a, a large amount of time on just the database, which it should be, I guess. That was an important part of the application. It is a very important part, and, and it sounds like it was the first bit you did too. Right. So so the moving to the web portion, right, um, so there's a concept of a web role and a worker role. And web role is nothing but you can think of it as the web application. And the worker role, you can think of it as a batch process. So uh, when I was building this using the Mars CTP, uh, I was limited to one web role and one worker role. Okay. Right? And in fact, I, in fact, I read a few days back, the July CTP allows you to do a multi-role, a multi-worker role and a multi-web role application. That, that I couldn't take advantage of that back in March. So you have one web role and one worker role. Uh, web role, you can think again of as your web application. So I took the ASP.NET code that they had and largely mapped it to the web role, right? And I had to make some modifications, and uh, I made the source code available so, so for folks who wanted to go into more detail can take a look at the code. Uh, but that worked pretty uh, easily. Uh, I was able to take the ASP.NET code, move it to the work, sorry, the web role. There are a few things that you have to be concerned about. Before the March CTP, you could only run it in medium trust, but uh, since March, they've enabled full trust, and I'm taking advantage of full trust. The other thing that you have to, to sort of uh, think about is if you have something in application start, web application start, you don't have access to that, so you know you if you you have to look at that carefully. Also, uh, it was interesting. Carl talked about uh, you know the time zones earlier on in the show. Uh, Windows Azure was running in the Seattle time zone, uh, and now it has switched over to the GMT time zone. Ah, uh, yeah, so you, yeah, that makes you sense. Have, you have to be careful about the time zone. Uh, those are the They'll things get you that every I had time. nothing nothing. Um, out of the ordinary, uh, could get most of that to work. Uh, uh, the, since I was running into this limitation of only one web role, and, and web role is the only sort of uh, um, option for you if you wanted to allow inbound communication into your application. Right. So if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to enable HTTP or HTTPS inbound connections. Web role is the only way to do that. And since I was limited to one web role, um, not only did I put all of the ASP.NET code in it, I created a virtual directory and also put some of my WCF web services in that as well. You know, now that may not be the best thing to do. You don't want to tie your UI code and web services code. Ideally, I would have been, I should have put my web services code into another web role 
my UI code in a separate web role, but I had only one at that time, so I put them together. Given the chance that you had multiple web roles, would you do any more partitioning beyond just separating the web pages from the web services? Uh, not that I can think of at this point. Okay. I think that would be sufficient. Uh, the existing application has a workflow service piece, which is which is you know combined a combination of WCF and workflow. And I know you were talking to Brian a few days back. Uh, so .NET 3.5 combined the two, and they call it workflow service. So the existing dinnernow.net application uh, used workflow services to, you know, get an input from the web, start a workflow process, and then store the data. The workflow actually is responsible for storing the data into the database. Right? That's how the application works currently. And uh, when I started looking at that, I said, Okay, I have something called the .NET workflow service, which is, you know, ability to host my workflow in the cloud. And what I did end up doing there was I created a workflow, ported it on the cloud, uh, and uh, had my web role talk to this workflow in the cloud. Now, since then, one major change has happened. Uh, since July, Microsoft has shut down the workflow service, and I don't know the exact reasons why I did that. The blog said that they wanted to restart that service when .NET 4.0 workflow is going to be available. So, okay. so they've shut it down temporarily. So as a result, I had to take that piece out. I, I couldn't have mimicked my workflow capability. So what I do instead is my web role is a bunch of ASP.NET pages, like I said earlier. It calls a few web services, which are co-located. And then once I receive an order, I store that order in the queue so that I don't take any hit in terms of, you know, going to the database, et cetera. Mm -hmm. All I do is take the order, store it in the queue, and then I have a background process, the worker roles that I mentioned earlier, right. which is monitoring the queue. It picks up the order from the queue and then stores the data into the Azure tables. So that's that's the responsibility of the worker role, and it helps me quietly. So I could see the idea that you, you would build your web roles as light as possible, just get the information or display the information, but it, as soon as you have any work to do, push it to a queue, and the worker roles right. then pick up the queues and push things back to the queue. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, I did not take advantage of um, the the service bus um, capability that Windows Azure provides, which mm -hmm. is the uh, ability to do um, relays, ability to do routers and queues. So I may have, uh, and it would have fit nicely. Uh, in this case, you know, the restaurants are running an application uh, which is running inside their data center, I presume, inside their firewall. And if I wanted to communicate to that in a secure manner, Service bus would have provided a very nice way to do that. Um, the restaurant-based application could have connected to the service bus, and then this, um, you know, Azure application could have sent a message to the service bus, which could then have been relayed into, inside the restaurant application located inside the firewall. So that's a capability that I would have explored when I, you know, when I do the other pieces, but have not been taken advantage of in this current release. And then I'm also thinking about what's the logical encapsulation for worker roles? Why would you have more than one? Uh, if you were getting a high throughput, 
uh, of incoming orders, uh, then you know you could have multiple worker roles. Yeah, but wouldn't that be the same role uh, instance multiple times? Yes. yes. And they'd all be executed against so, so the same queue. That's correct. That's correct. But I'm so, just trying to think uh, of, of a logical separation between worker roles where we'd have three or four different kinds of worker roles. Uh, you, you, could, you could obviously have different kinds. In this instance, the, the easiest way to scale up would be go change my configuration file. Right. And uh, make my worker roles from one to five. And now each of them starts looking at the queue. Uh, and, and there's an interesting API there where you, you know one worker role can take a look at the queue, get a message. That message becomes invisible for the other worker roles for a certain period of time. The worker role then has that time to process that order. And if for some reason it's not able to process that order, that message becomes visible again to other worker roles. So it pushes it back okay. on the queue. It pushes. Actually, it remains on the queue. It just becomes invisible for a period of time. Right. That's, so. that's, that's how the API works. And, and yeah, so you don't actually pop it off the queue until the, other, the, until the worker process says, okay, I'm done with this. It's finished. That's correct. That makes sense. Because then that's if the correct. worker role, for whatever reason, went away, you still got it right. sitting there intact. That's right. That's right. So um, I could add a number of worker roles, uh, all looking at the queue and doing the performing action, you know, storing it to the Windows Azure storage, etc. Uh, I can process these orders more quickly uh, and, you know, have, have a better turnaround time. I don't know if you were able to play with this yet, but I'm still looking at what it's going to take to create more instances. Near as I could tell, with every implementation like this so far, it's totally manual. That somebody has to actually be watching the queue and say, "Hey, this is getting out of hand. Let's fire up two or three more worker processes and drain the queue off." That, that is that is that's right, uh, Richard. Uh, in fact, uh, um, at the PDC, I was in one of the sessions, and this question came up: right. Would we have the ability to say, uh, you know, I want to pay for a range of worker roles? Right. So I want to pay for a range of from two to ten. And please, uh, you know, provision them if you see a need for those and then scale them down if there's no traffic. And I may be wrong about this uh, because I'm basing all of this on a question-answer session at the PDC, but I was told that the underlying data, con um, the fabric controller, which is really the brains behind Windows Azure, uh, is capable of supporting that model, uh, except that, uh, you know, uh, you... Currently, you're limited to Visual Studio. That's how you create the model. Right? Right. You create the code and you create the model, and your Visual Studio is essentially helping you create that model. Visual Studio-based template is not exposing a way for you to specify a range. That's what I was told. At some point, they will enable that. And then that's one big difference between Azure offering and the Google App Engine, where you can indeed specify a range. Yeah, and again, you could hide behind the fact that it's still a CTP and they just haven't implemented that or made it visible yet. That is true. Uh, there is uh, an API available, right? There is service hosting service runtime API, which allows you to, uh, you know, remotely in a programmatic manner start new roles. So you can be notified that, uh, you know, your worker role has a, you know, there's another API uh, called the role manager, uh, where you can use it to specify the health of the worker role, 
And you can monitor that, and if something goes wrong, you can use the API to start more roles. So I guess there is an opportunity for partners and ISVs to build that kind of capability, to automate that experience. So Vishwas, uh, given that we're being charged by transaction rates, what do you feel the cost of operating Dinner.Now would be? Sure. Uh, Richard, I I thought you might ask me this question. Uh, So I did a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation, and uh, I hope this was right. Uh, So uh, as you know, Microsoft announced the pricing at the World Partner Conference, um, not last week or the week before last. And uh, to be able to run an application like dinnernow.net, here is the kind of cost breakdown that I came up with. to take advantage of their 99.95% availability, right. you need to commit to at least two work, two web roles. Right. So the, a single role would be 30 days into 24 hours uh, uh, into 12 cents per hour. Right. Uh, that would be something like $172. Right. Uh, then I, you have to in this case, I'm storing data, not in a relational format, but in Azure tables. So you have to take that cost into account. Right. So let's say, uh, let's say I have 500 gigs of data. You know, I get lots and lots of orders, and I have to manage all of those orders. I can see that be the case. I, I probably will archive them, store them away. But for the purposes of this calculation, let's say I had 500 gigs of data, uh, which would be about $75. Right, um, and, and I would and, I, I would say this, Vish was five hundred gigs is a lot, a lot, a lot. a lot. People forget how much that is. That's a well, it, tremendous it is, it is amount. It is used, and, and for an OLT for a transactional system, it's huge. Uh, then uh, let's talk about the storage transaction costs. Yeah, um, uh, you know the number of operations that I had to make to to store and retrieve data from Windows Azure tables. And let's say I did a million of those transactions a month, and I'm, I'm really getting, you know, Pollyannish about how well my site is going to work, right? That okay. uh, one million storage transactions is dollar one, right? Uh, number of messages, uh, take that to be a million also. That's dollar fifty a month. Uh, factor in the cost of bandwidth. Let's say you have hundred GB of data coming in. That would be about dollar ten. Uh, then you have about five hundred gigs of data going out. People are downloading stuff. Uh, I don't. I don't think this is the characteristic for this application in particular. But then I, I just wanted to use really wide ranges here. Uh, so five hundred um, gigs of output bandwidth would be dollar seventy five. Right. Uh, so something like three fifteen or three twenty um, a month. To operate it at a rate of a million transactions a month. Million transactions, 500 gigs of storage, uh, you know, the network bandwidth that I talked about, 100 gigs yeah. in, 500 gigs out, 99.95% availability. And then I'm getting a fault tolerance. If something happens to my web role, they will start it within two minutes. Right. Uh, you're talking about geo replication my data is you know so my disaster recovery is built in uh, i'm talking about geolocation if for some reason i don't want my data to go outside the us i can specify which data center uh, it needs to reside in 
uh, we're talking about you know intrusion detection. Uh, we're talking about whole host of capabilities, and I don't want to sound give rattle out all the benefits. It's available on the web, but you're getting all of this without any upfront cost. About three hundred plus some a month to run the site. And that and that rate. I just did the math quickly. If you're doing a million transactions a month, that's about twenty three orders every minute. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. you're busy. Right. If you're making, say you make a dollar per order, I mean, it is food, right? The, the margins are pretty low. So you only make a dollar an order. You're making 23 bucks a minute. You yeah. make it like 1400 an hour. Right. That's, that's making money. <laughs> so, like, so, I'm thinking your infrastructure cost right now, pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that is what I, I, I think, uh, it is the case. And specific, especially if, you know, I can, I, I know that, Holiday season, Thanksgiving, what have what have you? I will bump up to ten rolls, and I pay for ten rolls for that yes. month. Then I bring it down to three rolls. Then I bring it up to you know whatever. I'm I'm just thinking for that price differential for that I'm making a million a month, and it's costing me three hundred a month. I think I'm just going to turn ten rolls on and leave them on. Absolutely. So uh, I, I think that the price advantage is enormous. It's huge. If you can turn out that if you're making a dollar a transaction in revenue, your per because your per transaction cost here is like three thousandths of a penny. It's pretty cheap. Yeah, it is. But for all of the capabilities that you're getting, I think this is pretty cheap. And and they can they can get it because they are operating at the scale that they are operating. You know, these data centers have thousands and thousands of machines. And the new data centers are based on this, you know, container-based model where they drop in a container with X number of machines. Something goes wrong with even a certain percentage of those machines. Vendor is to come in and place a new container. So they're they're operating really at a at, at a large scale, and, yeah. and that's the reason they can offer these prices. For sure. Well, guys, uh, I think we're just about out of time. Vishwas, thanks very much. This has been enlightening. Uh, I learned a lot about you know what's going on in Azure especially on the data side so thanks for your work and thanks for coming on the show thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you guys excellent we'll see you next time on Rocks .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio audio mastering video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.